You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Join the movement. We're joined today by Andrew Lowney who first became interested in the Cambridge spying when, as president of Cambridge Union Society in 1984, he arranged an international seminar on the subject. After graduating from Cambridge University, where he won the Dunster Prize for History, Lowney went on to take a postgraduate degree in history at Edinburgh University, a now successful literary agent, and has written or edited several books. The Andrew Lowney Literary Agency is founded in 1988 and is now one of the UK's leading boutique literary agencies with some 200 nonfiction and fiction authors. Andrew's newest book is Stalin's Englishman, Guy Burgess, The Cold War, and The Cambridge Spy Ring. Thank you, Andrew, for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Well, thank you for asking me. So there have been a lot of books on The Cambridge Five. It's one of the most notorious spy rings in history. But what makes this book different? Why is now the time to release a new book on Guy Burgess? Well, this is the first proper book on Guy Burgess. Uh, A book was published in 1956, which he helped uh, uh, write. But amazingly, though, as you say, there have been books on Philby and Burgess and, uh, sorry, Blunt uh, and McLean. This is the first time anyone has really looked at Burgess. And I've been working on this for over 30 years. I started uh, interviewing people in 1985. And, of course, then there were a lot of these people who were as contemporaries were still alive. So I talked to the brother of Donald McLean and and Burgess's own brother, uh, people like Michael Strait, one of the Cambridge uh, spies, people who investigated them, like Arthur Martin. So uh, I had a wonderful uh, hundred interviews with people, and I then got diverted with writing other books and a full-time job. And then I came back to it, and some files have now over the years been released, uh, and it's particularly useful to have the archives from the Russian side, which came out in the 1990s. So I've been able to put together the interviews and the documentary archival material to produce, I hope, is a pretty full account of his life. It's annoying when jobs get in the way of writing, you know, all the things we want to do. Um, for those who commit treason, we tend to try to find motivations and try to figure out why they did it, the reasons for turning into one's country. And with Burgess, perhaps like his comrades in the Cambridge Five, it doesn't seem to be all that difficult. Really, it's an ideological 
motivation. But well, it starts really early in his life. Yes, I don't think it's entirely ideological. I mean, there were plenty of people who were uh, drawn to communism who didn't become spies, or if they became spies, dropped out of the Nazi-Soviet pact. The point about the Cambridge Five is they kept going all the way through. And I think a lot of it is personal. It, it gave them a kick, basically, to, to, to be running with the hares and the hounds, to, to be on both sides at once. Uh, and it was they, they loved the world of deceit. They were deceitful in their private lives. Uh, and so I think, though he was a Marxist historian and he believed that the future lay with two power blocks, uh, America and Russia, and, and he felt Russia was the one that he wanted to side with, I think a lot of it was, was, was personal. And it began, as you say, very much in his youth. Uh, there's a line, uh, if I can't belong, I'll betray. And I think there was this very strong sense of not belonging, not being part of the wider community from, from the time he was a child. This might strike a chord with the grad students out there or anyone who has a, a PhD. It seems a milestone moment in his life was when someone else published a book on the topic Burgess was planning to write his dissertation on. And it's a nightmare scenario. It was mine. It was a question I asked at the first orientation. Like, what if I'm four years into grad school and somebody published a book and this is really what happens to Burgess? You know, and it leaves him as you say in the book with communism, is really his only sense of purpose. Exactly. I think this, this is a crucial... The, the timing was, was, was great. Uh, it, this was 1934. Uh, he's, at this point, the Russians approach him. He, the two purposes in life have been his academic study and his, his political activity, and suddenly one crutch is taken away. And he's looking for some sort of purpose in his life. He's a rebel without a cause, and the Russians give him a validation and a purpose. You mentioned the fact that the Cambridge Five stuck with it when so many others didn't. It's, it seems like these events really had no real effect on him. You, he visits the Soviet Union. And I know the argument that a lot of people make about a lot of the American spies, for instance, is that they just didn't know and understand what was happening inside the Soviet Union. So they bought into this whole utopia idea. Well, he didn't have that because he visited the Soviet Union. He saw how it was not the reality that was being portrayed. And, of course, the Nazi-Soviet pact seemed to be a complete non-factor. What pushed him through this? I mean, it, my, I mean, it looks like he hated the United States so much that this was a kind of a key well, issue. To I, I fear his anti-Americanism was, as with Philby, an important factor. Uh, you're right. I mean, he knew more than anyone, really, about uh, communism. He was the resident expert in the Foreign Office. Indeed, he lectured on the evils of communism. So he can, could have had no um, illusions about what it was like. But I think they, you know, he was able to do these intellectual somersaults. Uh, when people like Gromwy Reese dropped out during the Nazi-Soviet pact, he and, and, and Blunt justified it by saying, well, the Russians are only buying time uh, and nothing has changed. So I think they, they, they were very naive, as a lot of intelligent people can be. And I think once they were in, it was quite difficult to get out. Uh, but Blunt did get out a bit after the war. But Burgess was caught there, and I think this, this adrenaline kick was, was compensated for everything. I want to talk a, a little bit about his recruitment. That's one kind of key component that we like to focus on here. It didn't seem all that difficult to recruit Guy Burgess, except for the fact that people like Kim Philby really had reservations against uh, Burgess being brought absolutely. in. Absolutely. I mean, Philby was the first to be recruited. He was directed, I think, probably by uh, Cambridge Don to, to, to someone in the, in the underground in Austria. Uh, called Litzy Friedman, who turned out to be a Russian agent. She recruited Philby, and Philby was sent back with, uh, to recruit others, and he put together a list of seven names. The top of the list was Don McLean, but the bottom was Burgess, because, as you say, there were reservations about his, um, the fact he was indiscreet, and 
but in fact, he, he got to hear about what was going on. He worked out what was going on, and he basically lobbied to be let in. I mean, he, he, he really was really keen to join. The interesting question is what happened to the numbers two to six? Were they recruited right. uh, and never caught, or did, were they, did they refuse? Well, it seems like McLean told him that he was spying for the Soviets. And at that point, you really kind of had to recruit Burgess because you, it's easier to keep him in line from the inside than from the outside. Exactly. I think that was a problem. And, I mean, their tradecraft was terrible. I mean the, 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 I mean, the fact that they knew each other was bad. I mean, this was, of course, why Philby got into trouble later on because he had uh, shared a house with Burgess. Uh, Burgess and Blunt shared a house during the war. Uh, they were known to be very close to each other. Burgess actually had affairs with both McLean and, and Blunt. So all the tradecraft went out the window, uh, and it's perhaps not surprising that eventually you know, one person led to another. Well, homosexuality seems to be a key issue, as it would be for someone who is so blatantly open uh, with their sexuality. It's interesting to see that the, the Soviets actually viewed this as an asset almost for recruiting. Uh, it wasn't something that uh, was seen as a problem because you know for Burgess being so open, but something that could help the Soviets to uh, to dig into or to infiltrate the gay community inside Britain. Absolutely. I mean, he had a series of clandestine networks uh, of friends who were either entirely homosexual or bisexual, uh, and he was able to exploit these networks. And they were used to keeping their lives compartmentalized and, de- you know, to be discreet. Uh, and the Russians could see that. And I think another factor was that because homosexuality was illegal at this time, people felt criminalized by their sexuality and didn't feel an allegiance to the state. So that was, again, an easy way of getting people to come and work because they didn't feel the same sort of loyalties. We talked about how Philby recruited Burgess and McLean, but Burgess was a key component in the recruitment of the other two members of the Cambridge Five. Anthony Blunt uh, recruited many, as you say, a lot because of the Spanish Civil War was a key component component in his uh, belief system. And then John Cairncross was a, a key recruit of Burgess's. Absolutely. And also uh, Michael Strait, who's the American side of the story, and Michael Gromy Reese, the Oxford side. He, he, in fact, was a recruiter uh, at both Oxford and Cambridge. And I think because he was so charismatic and so sociable, it was a good role for him. And he was also a very dominant personality and very persuasive. And he was able to either uh, take advantage of, of people's... Uh, and there was a lot of emotional blackmail. That's how Michael Strait was brought in. Philby, of course, is seen as the ringleader in many respects because he reaches such a high level in British intelligence. But Burgess is actually the first one to get a job in intelligence. Yeah, and he's the one who brings Philby into MI6. I mean, he's also the only one to serve in both MI5 and MI6. And I think what I try and show in the book is Philby's been overrated, partly because mm-hmm. Philby, in a sense, bigged himself up. Uh, he was only ever known as Agent Tom. He, he, was, uh, uh, he makes great claims in his autobiography, which I don't think stand up to scrutiny. Whereas Burgess was the one, according to the Russians, who kept the whole show on the road, brought people together, uh, and had some pretty important jobs. Philby only served in MI6, where, of course, he did betray operations. But Burgess was in 6, he was in 5, uh, he had a key role in the Foreign Office right. at the beginning of the Second World War. What really made me laugh out loud was the fact that Burgess, one of his first jobs was to find the underground members of the Communist Party <laughs> inside Britain. Essentially put in charge of the hen house in many respects. Yeah, I mean, the, book, I mean, the story is filled with paradoxes and ironies and, um, uh, and black comedy, really. You couldn't make up a lot of the stuff that happened. There's a great kind of uh, 
interesting juxtaposition about the way the British viewed their their populace at the time. In, in, in Burgess come right out and says that he's never going to get suspected because he went to Eton. He's from a rich family. He's an intellectual. He has all the, the trademarks of a British gentleman. And that's what keeps, uh, oh, no, Burgess is not going to be a bad guy. Well, I think this was the great shock. Until then, they'd always you know, found that spies came you know, with the code clerks and people. And this was a shock to discover that people from the heart of the establishment who, as you say, had been to top schools and in, in the universities could be, could be spies. Uh, and everyone felt, I mean, there was a lot after of... of uh, of embarrassment afterwards, and I think that was partly why it was covered up. I mean, that was true here too. I mean, Michael Strait, after all, was never prosecuted, uh, even though he confessed to being a spy because he came from a prominent family and uh, owned uh, an important newspaper. So I think it worked on both sides of the Atlantic. You talked about impact, and I, and I think that it's very easy to see that Burgess' intelligence proved invaluable to the Soviet Union, certainly before the war, where he was providing information about how the British felt about the Germans and about the Soviets. And it, it's not out of the realm of possibility to argue that the Nazi-Soviet pact was in somewhat a response to the information that Burgess provides. Yes, I mean, the, the, the message I got was that the, the information he passed back from, the, from MI6 and from his, un, from his uh, liaison with the French uh, um, Prime Minister de Ladier through one of his networks did condition the Nazi-Soviet pact. So, I mean, he had a huge impact on history. And what's really also interesting to me is that even with what we know that they were able to accomplish, meaning the Cambridge Five, the Soviets weren't really able to maximize them as much as they could because the purges and the defection of Walter Kavitsky made them shut down the London Residentura, and they didn't trust the information. They were too good. Exactly. This is one of the great paradoxes. When the material was released in the 80s, we found a lot of it hadn't been translated. And this makes doing the audit very difficult because we don't know who saw what, when. But absolutely, Stalin couldn't believe that his allies weren't spying on him and thought they must be lying. And, as, and he couldn't believe the access that they had. Um, and, I mean, Burgess, you're absolutely right. All the, the, the case officers were withdrawn and, and executed in the 30s during the purges. And Burgess was so keen, he went across to Paris and tried to keep the thing going. Indeed, there's an extraordinary story of him working himself, himself across to Washington in 1940 in the hope of reaching Russia because I think he was keen to, 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 to link up again with his case officers. Well, and everyone knew they were communists back in the 1930s, so I guess there's a little bit of mirror imaging. Stalin saying, why would they, in the world would they let open communists or people who were communists work for intelligence? And then Blunt was part of the double-cross system, which means that, at least in the Soviet perspective, that they must be being run as doubles against the Soviets. Exactly. I mean, they were because they were aware of double, double cross. They assumed it was just a triple cross. <laughs> um, I mean, Blunt. Uh, the, the story is told of Blunt getting into MI5, where he receives a say, uh, two letters on the same day. One saying you were a communist at Cambridge, and we don't want you. And the other, uh, can you join on Monday? And I, I think this was the problem. They were expanding so quickly at the beginning of the war that they just couldn't vet people properly. And as you say, if they'd gone to the right school, they were okay. Yeah. By 1944, Burgess had worked his way into something called the News Department of the Ministry of Information. Now, that sounds pretty benign, but there's a lot going on there, isn't there? Yes. I mean, he's working in uh, – he, he becomes a propaganda expert. In fact, in 1939, he, 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 he's part of a new secret unit called the Joint Broadcasting Committee, which is transmitting uh, propaganda to Nazi Germany. And he continues in MI6 doing those sort of jobs of teaching. Um, and then, as you say, during the war, he moves into the uh, – um, he's in the Ministry of Information, which is 
which is picking up a lot of information through the neutrals, peace negotiations, uh, and then he gets himself into the news department, and the news department gives him access to a lot of material because everything has to come through the news department. Uh, and that really then um, gives him the links with people like Hector McNeil, who's a politician who then employs him to join him at the Foreign Office. I, I, when I was reading the book, I made a list of some of the information he came across, just to give the listeners an idea. Information about the Polish question, which was kind of a key consideration in the post-war world, from the San Francisco Conference, which develops the United Nations, information about the division of Germany and what the Allies were planning, about something called Operation Unthinkable, which was a war plan that between the British and the Soviets, information, information of the growing hostility between the West and the Soviet Union, information about the defection of Igor Gazenko, and then information about Konstantin Volkov, who was supposed to be another defector that could have been a game changer, but it was in time to stop him through Kim Philby. I mean, this is just in a short period of time that all this stuff is going through this office and Burgess is just sucking it all up. Absolutely. I mean, about 5,000 documents were taken at this time. I mean, he's there, of course, during the Berlin airlift as well. Uh, and indeed, the position is that the uh, Russians knew the British negotiating position at the four power conferences before the British team themselves did. So, I mean, they were absolutely stymied. And then he even moved further up. He went to the foreign office from there, which is where all the top information is going through. Uh, and because of the job that he was able to get at the very highest level, uh, he saw the minutes of every cabinet meeting, all the defense ministers meeting, basically as much as you could be as a fly on the wall of all the top conversations of the British government. Yes, I mean, as, as the personal assistant to Hector McNeil, he sees everything. And because uh, he's quite conscientious and Hector McNeil is rather lazy, he sees more than, than he perhaps should have seen anyway. Absolutely. How did his personality help him here? Was it, office gossip and sometimes rumors are some of the most important things you can pull down. Yeah, he was very good at this. He, he hung around. There was a tea every afternoon. He hung around there. He knew everyone. He was, as I say, very sociable. Uh, uh, he'd been at school with most of them. Uh, and he just picked their brains. And on a slightly more sinister level, he lent his flat to people for their assignations and then blackmailed them. Old school tradecraft <laughs> on that one. Movement Watches at MVMT Watches was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 500,000 watches sold to customers in 160-plus countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. The story of this company's beginning is quite extraordinary. In 2013, two watch enthusiasts dropped out of college with the dream of reinventing the watch industry. Tired of big brand markups, the duo set out to create a direct-to-consumer model. Due to enormous fan support, they became the second-highest crown-funded fashion brand in 2013. Through the amazing engagement of their fans, they have established a growing community on social media amassing 1.5 million followers. And since 2013, they've come really far. The watches are gorgeous both men's and women's watches. I told you this before, but when I went to their website to check out the watches, a huge argument broke out here in the museum about which one looked the best. There are just so many great choices. And even though I'd eventually choose a single watch, there were so many that I would love to have. And the great part is, if I want another one, I can afford it. Not that I make a lot of money, but movement watches only start about $95. And in a department store, you're looking at $400 to $500 for this quality of watch. Movement figured out that by selling online, they were able to cut out the middleman in retail markup, providing the best possible price. 
classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 500,000 watches sold in over 160 countries. So you get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com. That's M-V-M-T watches.com slash spycast. The watch I have has a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. A lot of, hey, where'd that come from? So now's the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. And join the movement. After a, a short stint in the Far East Department, he was posted essentially to his hell, Washington, D.C. Uh, and I get that sometimes. The traffic here makes me want to go somewhere else. But because he hated the Americans so much, this was not somewhere he wanted to be. But it also gave him access to incredibly valuable intelligence. Um, I think we call the rogues gallery is that where it's just essentially this hallway with all the power brokers inside British intelligence and British diplomacy. And he had access to everything. Yeah, it's extraordinary. I mean, he, you know, they, everyone knew he was anti-American and it was a very key embassy, but he was sent here because they needed a Far East expert, which is what he was. Of course, the Korean war had just broken out. He came in the summer of 1950. Uh, and that's what he was dealing with. And who knows what he betrayed, uh, to, to, to um, the Russians, who, of course, would have then passed it on to the Chinese. So, uh, absolutely. And, I mean, the, the people have tried to cover up what he was doing, but he was, his name was on limited circulation lists that I saw. And, as you say, he was in this very secure part of the embassy in the um, chancery uh, beside Philby and, in fact, Philby's uh, secretary, uh, a woman called Esther Whitfield, who was a sort of code clerk, who was also Philby's mistress, and actually then became Burgess's lover. From, from my reading, it seems like Washington was kind of the beginning of the end, and this has something to do with, we haven't talked about a lot yet, is his drinking and his substance abuse across the board. Uh, Burgess is known as a heavy drinker, but it, I think people don't maybe don't know the fact of how early this started, and that it wasn't just drinking. I mean, there's there's a lot of heavy drug use here as well. Yeah, he, he'd been drinking really heavily since, uh, since university. I mean, he often had a bottle of wine for lunch when he was at university. Uh, and uh, it was all hard spirits. Uh, he even had whiskey in his, the, in his uh, car um, glove box. Uh, but really by the late 40s, as defectors emerged, nay, saying there was a spy in the Foreign Office, as he realized codes might be broken, he became more and more... Um, uh, dependent on alcohol and, as you say, cocaine. He got drugs from a friend of his who was a vet who specialized in horses, so they uh, never got the dosage right. That's, uh, what uh, are the, I mean, one of the funny, he, he injures his head when he falls downstairs or he's pushed downstairs. We don't know which one. And after a head injury, you talk about the fact that he, he was taking dosages of drugs that was like horse-level yeah. doses of drugs. He was essentially a complete automaton at that and point. Then, and then he's sent off to recuperate in Ireland, and he's uh, arrested for drunken driving there as an accident. So, Basically, drunken driving at rehab is where, where he <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and he had diabetes. I mean, he had everything wrong with him. Uh, uh, and, I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's what killed him. And how much did this contribute to lapses? I, you talked about the fact that Klaus Fuchs, uh, who very famously was arrested by the British and kind of opened up uh, the floodgates to some of the investigations of the atomic spies, could have potentially been exfiltrated because Burgess knew that they were coming down on him and he kind of forgot to pass it along to Philby. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I think he was making mistakes, and he was dropping documents in... I mean, there's a case of him dropping documents in a pub at a meeting, and actually uh, a policeman helpfully putting it back in the, in the case. 
Uh, he was. Well, this is awkward, uh, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not the sort of thing you should be doing. He was unreliable. Yes, he was beginning to be unreliable, and I think you know the the Russians can see he was a burnt out case. And this is really around the point where he makes his famous flight to the Soviet Union. I want to ask you about that. Is it seems like he never intended to? Well, he intended to go, but never intended to stay there. Was his plan just to drop? McLean off and head on back? Well, this is one of the great mysteries. Uh, I mean, he claimed his cover story was that he was going to take him halfway uh, and then come back. He had plans to go and see Auden in Ischia. Uh, and so whether that's you know, what, what he intended, uh, and then he was tricked into going further, the Russians realized that you know, he couldn't come back. That's one version. Another is that he thought he could go and then he could come back because he'd never actually been found out, but of course by going with McLean he drew attention to himself. But I did come across something interesting, that uh, he went to visit his old childhood home the day before he left, for the only time he's ever, he'd ever done this. And that suggests that he realised he might not be coming back for a while. Yeah, you do kind of walk through a couple of things that he does that are a little odd for somebody assuming that they're going to come back. Let's put ourselves in his head, I know it's hard to do. How in the world could he ever think that after helping Donald McLean escape to Russia, that he'd be able to come back and live a normal life. Was that just his drunken stupor, the drug-addled I, I think brain? they were, you know, they, they, they deceived themselves, a lot of them. I mean, he was full of this all the way through his life. I mean, he, he didn't really see things uh, as others saw things. And I think he just thought that he could come back. I mean, he, he did have a lot on a lot of British officials, and I think he thought that they'll keep quiet because he could blackmail them. Uh, and they would let him back. I think. I think he, you know, he and he kept threatening them, saying, you know, I if you if you let me back, I won't you know, spill the beans. Do you think he never thought about how his defection may have affected the other members of the Cambridge Five? And Kim Philby very famously took it quite hard yep. uh, when Burgess and McLean left, especially Burgess, because. He could be tied to everyone. Absolutely. And, I mean, I asked the Russians, why did they allow Burgess to go when, of course, exposed Philby? And they said, we had plenty of others. We didn't care. Hmm. So that may be disinformation. It may be just general cock-up. Uh, I mean, Philby very skillfully defended himself. And though he was sacked in 51, he was never totally taken off the books until he went in 63. They hadn't got the evidence. So in some ways, he did bluff it out. Uh, uh, but I think Burgess did feel guilty about it, and he was nervous when Philby came to Moscow in the beginning of 63. Uh, and the great mystery was whether they had actually met, they'd been kept apart, or Philby didn't want to see him. But the information I got was that they did meet. But ironically, these two great friends found that they'd grown apart and had nothing in common. One thing I thought was very interesting was the fact that you, even if Burgess had come back, there's very little the British government could have done to charge him with anything. Absolutely, and he knew that, and I think that was the case with the others. You know, that's why Blunt was allowed to get away with it and have, get immunity in '63, uh, even though he'd been a suspect since '51. Michael Strait uh, in America was never charged. Leo Long, John Cairncross, uh, and indeed Philby was allowed to escape. I mean, you know, they went and interviewed him and said, "We're going to come and pick you up tomorrow." Right. And of course, he fled that night. I mean, it, it's it's extraordinary that that, that happened. Well, was it? Mainly, partly because some of the information was from Venona, and there'd be no way to actually use that in a trial. Yes, I think that was the main thing. Absolutely, and and in some ways they didn't want to wash this stuff in public. Uh, there was, you know, the, the, one of the great consequences of the, the flight was the breakdown in relation Anglo-American cooperation on intelligence, 
Uh, and what was going on was the FBI, the State Department, and the CIA really weren't talking to each other either. And certainly the Foreign Office Security Department and FBI uh, and the M MI5 and MI6 were not liaising properly. No one wanted to show that they'd cocked up. Well, because it's right in the middle of McCarthyism as well. It's not necessarily the best environment in exactly. the United States. Exactly. I think it's another factor. Exactly. And I think people were quite protective for that reason. Let me ask you... It seems overall, and, and, and again, you, you know, we're focusing on Burgess here, but it seems overall that he even did good work when he had defected. It worked for the Soviets while in the Soviet Union. Ab he continued to be an asset. Absolutely. I think the story has always been that he was just a drunken buffoon uh, and he was working for a publishing house. But I discovered talking to the Russians uh, that, in fact, he worked for the Russian Foreign Ministry. He advised on British politics and on politicians. He knew them all from running this radio program uh, the week in Westminster. Uh, and he was very effective, uh, and he was using disinformation measures, uh, and in some ways he was at his most useful when he was in the Soviet Union. Well, and deeply involved in influence operations, which has always been a you know, key component Absolutely. of Soviet intelligence policy. A Absolutely, yeah. Uh, it, you also write that he analyzed recruitment methods of the British. I mean, I get what better person to ask about how to recruit a young British intellectual than a young British intellectual. I mean, how, how much of an impact could this possibly have been? Well, I think they very cleverly used him, absolutely. He was good at writing reports. He had this very incisive analytical brain that could see the big picture. And I think he, he did. He drew from this experience of recruiting many people over, over a lifetime uh, and uh, you know, helped them refine their process. Because I'm sure this, this recruitment process of long-term sleepers, that didn't stop in the 1930s. That continued. A broader overall assessment, is it seems like to me that the most important information that he gives them, perhaps, because he worked at MI5, MI6, the Foreign Office, in touch with all these top political people, is how things worked, who the people were, the bureaucratic background, the infighting, the gossip, the, the nuts and bolts of the British system seems to me more important than any one piece of information. Absolutely. I think that's, you've absolutely hit on the head. And that's why I think he is more important than people like Philby, uh, who you know, clearly had access to operations. But it was about the culture. It was about the people. Uh, quite apart from the access to information he had over a long period of time, right across government. What was it? See, I mean, we have to kind of not use historical hindsight to understand this, because most people out there have heard of MI5 and MI6 and understand what SIS is and and know even where the MI6 building is because they saw it blow up in Bond. This is not the time in the 40s and 50s where a lot of people know about this. So the Russian access to this information is not like Googling MI5. It's, it's a secret organization. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, he made a point of getting to know the senior members of, of, of these organizations. And he socialized with them. They gave him gossip. They had no idea. They were very trusting. Uh, I mean, bad. I mean, there was bad document security and there was bad... All, you know, all security was very poor. And he passed this stuff back. And it was gossip. It could be stuff for use for blackmail. But as you say, it was a, they, they, the, the Russians then had a very clear idea of what the British were likely to do because they understood the, the, the thought processes. Are, are we assuming that the, these guys that we know about are just the tip of the iceberg? Yes. I mean, I think we, you know, it's a misnomer to talk about the Cambridge Five. It's more like the Cambridge 50. We know that uh, various code names like prophet, uh, professor, poet, chauffeur, but we don't know who they are. Uh, we know many people who did confess, like Leo Long and Michael Strait, uh, uh, who are not normally considered to be part of the group of five. We know that it was an Oxford ring, in fact, run by someone called Arthur Wynne, who'd been at Cambridge, with people like Jennifer Hart uh, and Bernard Flood and others. Uh, and we also know 
that there were, they, the Russians numbered their recruits, and though Burgess and McLean were recruited within a very short space of a few weeks, there's a big gap in the, in the numerical order between them. So I think there's a lot more to come. I hope, I hope. I mean, are, are, are we potentially seeing that? I mean, the Russian archives aren't opening up any time soon. Well, I think this is a great tragedy. You know, yeah. we had that moment, and I think it's very unlikely to happen again. Uh, and, you know, our governments are not doing it. It's something that concerns me that, you know, history, particularly intelligence history, depends on documents because often you can't talk to people. They're not allowed to speak to you or they will dissemble. Uh, and though the documents aren't themselves always accurate, it's something, at least in this jigsaw, uh, and if those documents aren't being released, and these are historical cases of 70 years, then um, we're never going to get to the truth. And I think that allows speculation, it allows people like Snowden to you know, go over the top because they feel frustrated that um, the full picture isn't being released. Well, uh, our listeners are relatively familiar with the nightmare that is FOIA and, and the chaos that it can cause when you think you've got something and it comes all redacted. Or There's a great story about the NSA at their FOIA request, sending a Wikipedia page. Uh, it's all stamped, you know, unclassified. Well, we have, we have stuff in Britain where they, I, they have retained documents which are press cuttings uh, and parliamentary debates from the 1950s. So this material that's been in the public domain for uh, 60 years is still retained uh, under the new releases. I had one the other day where on what's called post-disappearance papers where the government had refused to release them because they might well jeopardize the mental health of the descendants of the people mentioned in the uh, papers. Is there hope that the British government will release some of these documents anytime soon? Well, or is there... I've been lobbying really hard, and I've actually taken them through the processes and taken the government to court on several occasions. Uh, uh, but they're, they're standing out. And, and I, the, the tragedy is not enough historians and politicians and journalists are grouping together to, to lobby. So they just pick off the individuals who, who try and do something. So I don't have great hope. I mean, I have talked to government ministers in Britain, uh, and they seem keen to do something, but I think when it comes to the crunch, there are other priorities uh, and there are not many votes in it. When you talked about the embarrassment that it already has caused, is there, is there potentially further embarrassment? If you, if you expose that some top British heroes or American heroes were actually spies for the Soviets, I can't imagine that would go over too well. Well, one of the, 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 the cases I've got at the moment is, is called Soviet defectors Kim Philby and George Blake. Uh, and they're refusing to release the file because they, it, it refers to a Soviet defector who's still alive and mm -hmm. he's protected under data protection. So I think there are others. I, I mean, the point, I mean, there's a chap called Fred Warner who worked with Burgess mm -hmm. in the Foreign Office and who he had an affair with. And indeed, uh, there were attempts to blackmail him. And he was sidelined for a while and then came back and eventually became ambassador. Now, he died 20 years ago, but his file was reclassified two years ago uh, not to be open until 2,133. <laughs> so uh, I don't know who's going to be around, but right. so it's, it's going to be worth waiting for probably. But then you do get things. I had something, I had another case, and I saw the document today, uh, which we won, and they, they, re they redacted some stuff, and it's about a tip-off about Philby, and it's completely innocent. Uh, I mean, you, don't, you kind of wonder why they bother. Well, here in the United States, as housed at George Washington University, there's something called the National Security Archive, which essentially is an institution that just FOIAs everything that involved some kind of national security. Is there, is there an equivalent organization in Britain that try to get these documents released uh, as a, uh, as a full-time job? As I, a, wish, I wish. Yeah. No, I, I seem to be a one-man band trying yeah. to do this. Um, we have a freedom of uh, information campaign, but they're more uh, concerned with contemporary 
uh, material than historical. So I wish it's a good idea. We, I think we need a, we need the equivalent in Britain. Is is you've been doing this for a while? Have you seen the uh, increasing tensions with the Russians changing the way people are willing to give information or? the way archives are open to you, or has that not trickled down uh, to that level? No, I don't think so. I mean, the only difference is, is, is that moment of glasnost with, with the Russians. Right. But um, I'm not aware it's made things more difficult, um, it's, but it certainly hasn't made it easier. Right. Mm. Yeah, it's unlikely we're going to get back into those archives anytime soon. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for the continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. Well, thank you so much. Uh, Andrew Lowney is author of Stalin's Englishman, Guy Burgess, The Cold War, and The Cambridge Spy Ring. I've read it. It's, it's a fantastically interesting book. Uh, for someone like me or any of you who know a little bit about The Cambridge Five, who've read books about Kim Philby, this will be eye-opening. Uh, because Guy Burgess tends to be thought of as the drunk guy or the other one. Uh, and Philby gets all the press. I think this will change a lot of people's opinion. So thank you, Andrew, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at INTL SpyCast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.